back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and I'm here today with tech editor Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. Uh, we have a bit of a, I guess, a Tour de France tech special for you today. Um, not a ton of new items that we necessarily want to talk about. There are a couple of key instances that we want to talk about. However, uh, we are recording this podcast on Wednesday, June 30th, although I guess it's Thursday for you, Dave. Um, mm-hmm. I'm in the future. You are in the future, but we did just wrap up stage five. Um, and yeah, a couple couple interesting tech things. Uh, stage one, there was a rather large, well, several large crashes, um, one of which resulted in the completely broken seat stay of Yumbo Visma rider Stephen Kreuzwick, who finished that stage on that bike. Um, and then at stage five, we had the EF team racing Cannondale's new as yet unnamed time trial bike. So those are the two items that we are going to dig into today. Uh, and it is not just going to be Dave and I talking about it because I managed to get Cannondale road design engineer, Nathan Barry on the phone to talk about this new TT bike ahead of its official release, which is at some point in the future. And then I also got a hold of Scott Roy, the engineering manager at Cervelo, to talk about Stephen Kreuzwick's bike because, you know, it would seem that a bike without a seat stay shouldn't really work, but it turns out that it did. So we were going to talk about all that. Dave, have you been watching the tour? A little bit. I've been catching up on the highlights. It's uh, it's held at about an hour here and I like my sleep, so I just <laughs> catch up in the morning. So, uh, yeah. Fair enough. You, James? You? Have you been tuning in? Uh, I've been, well, I mean, the the timing works out fairly well for me because I can wake up in the morning and basically catch sort of like the second half of the stage-ish somewhere around there. And yeah, it's actually been pretty good to watch. This has been a good start of the tour so far. I mean, certainly, again, not super excited about all the crashing, but uh, overall, it's been really pretty exciting, I think. Um, So yeah, even as someone who doesn't typically pay a whole lot of attention to road racing, especially, been good so far. Been good. And we have our man, Ronan McLaughlin, on the ground in France, checking everything out. And he has definitely been busy. So hopefully you all have been checking out cyclingtips.com to see all the things that he has seen while he's been on the ground. So Ronan has definitely been putting some wear in on those sneakers. Absolutely. He's been keeping busy, so we don't have to. Exactly. So thank exactly. you, Ronan. Thank yes. you. Yes. Dave and I have actually been doing absolutely nothing for the last week. I've, I've, I've basically just been sleeping in until 11 every day. It's been good. Quite nice. Thanks, Rodin. Thanks, Rodin. We're going to send you next year too, by the way. It'll be great. Uh, Anyway, let's go ahead and dive into this first interview with Scott. um, Scott Roy from Cervelo, not Scott Bicycles. Um, So let's talk to him about this this situation with Stephen Kreuzwick's bike. Because again, a bike with a completely gone seat stay seems like it shouldn't work, but it did. So let's hear about this whole thing from Scott, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. I think uh, we should start, or well, I meant to start with saying that if you do crash, um, please take the bike to, back to a bike shop and have them examine it. I know we're, we're talking about pretty unique circumstances here, um, and it's a, it's a pretty awesome story, um, and it speaks to a bit of what we uh, like to do as an engineering team here, but absolutely, if, if you crash your bike, take it back first things first to a local bike shop and have them look at it. Um, so now that's out of the way. Um, let's talk about uh, <laughs> the bike. So um, circumstances around it. It's been it's been a pretty. First of all, it's been a pretty difficult tour to watch. Not just because of what the situation around the combo, but um, I mean, I've been following 
the tour uh, really closely for about a decade now and it just seems like it's getting worse and worse um like i've i've crashed enough bikes uh to know that it's it's not i'm it's 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 getting tiring to watch it's getting hard to watch um and i think um something needs to happen from uci before it before it gets to a point where we don't want to a situation we don't want to have to talk about or think about so um yeah it's been it's been a pretty chaotic three days but specifically on day one um so we all know about the first crash um that stephen wasn't directly involved uh he was okay um there was real not really any major damage to the bike he got on and carried on after that um i believe it was about 35 40 something k's later uh he got a flat so at that point he changed bikes um awesome no worries so um with with the support vehicles because it's stage one this is it's all become this on series of unfortunate events with this bike so because it's stage one um they're not uh they're not stacked as per the gc contention there it's a, it's a random lottery so um our our support vehicles are effectively last in the caravan um so if we fast forward to the second major crash the really fast crash um Stephen was involved in that uh, in a way. So he came, he was able to come to a stop, uh, but other riders weren't and he ran, they ran into the back of him. So the exact circumstances of what happened, we don't really know, but um, it was, there was other riders in the peloton that couldn't stop and, and effectively ran into the back of his non-drive side, if I remember correctly. Um, Correct. And it it basically snapped the, the seat stay straight off. It was just, bike or leg or wheel or we're not sure what it was specifically um so because of the position so at that point picked himself up what's going on um kind of gave a quick overview of the bike didn't notice it jumped back on um didn't notice it he's missing a second second big uh second big thing so um jumped back on and it, it felt okay he started riding again and he knew that um as i mentioned with the support vehicle they were so far back um, in the caravan, he, he wouldn't have time to, to sit and wait for them. So he's like, all right, I need to get back onto the, um, onto the, onto the peloton. So he's riding and, and, uh, he noticed something that he was like, it feels like I've got another flat. So he's like, all right, whatever. I'm just going to keep powering through because we just don't have time. It's not far left. Um, and I've had a quick look at his power data and up some of the climbs. He was, he was basically at, at full stick going up the climbs and the bike was, was fine. It did, it honestly, he got off and he's like, it kind of felt like it was a bit of a, not a flat, but there was less less pressure in his rear. Um, yeah, so that, and then obviously, you know, he got off and, and everyone kind of had a look and it was like, wow, that's, there's, there's bits of that bike missing. So, um, but I think we're all kind of glad at that point anyway, Stephen was okay um, and, and the bike was, was held together reasonably well. Yeah, it's a, it's a cumulative series of unfortunate events. If it was a different stage and we, the caravan was closer, the bike would have been swapped. It wouldn't be you know, a, a situation where I would condone that doing that again. Um, cause there's, Oh, you don't, you don't condone removing a whole section of your frame and continuing to ride. You mean, <laughs> no, no, no. So, well, um, if we, if we separate, uh, if we break this down into purely engineering and, 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 um, of, of what is involved in a trip in a double triangle frame, um, we've, if you think back, we've made a bike, with no seat stays and no seat tube in the P5X. So um, it's not 
it's not unprecedented ground for us. And I think that um, there's a lot of factors that obviously go into a bike design and what the use case is and what, what metrics you're trying to, to hit with weight or with stiffness or with aero. Um, I think uh, also 90, I would say 99% of the design limitations are driven by UCI, uh, which I, I quite antiquated. I think the, the design scope and the design envelope we're allowed to work in is, is kind, and it's not a bad thing. It's, it's more almost protecting the, the, the history and the prestige of, of, of cycling, road cycling, more than uh, kind of the safety of riders if, if they want to use that analogy. Um, so there's a lot of uh, shapes and designs that we have that we can't use. And you, you see those exaggerated in like TT and Ironman and stuff like that, time trial, um, triathlons, sorry. Um, so if you're looking from a structural point of view, the main load paths really are, are kind of the down and chain stays. Um, if you think back to, I wanna say it was a Soloist or the R3SL, um, and I don't remember exactly what the marketing term was that we used, but when we brought out those razor, razor thin seat stays, um, that was kind of a tipping point for us when we did um, kind of a lot of structural analysis on what load paths are actually seen by the seat stays. Um, and to try and really kind of simplify this in a, in a kind of nugget of information, it's at this point in specific lightweight frames, um, the seat stays are really only there because the seat stays need to be there. Um, then they're almost, we're at a minimum, if we could go thinner and smaller, we would. Um, it, the limitations aren't from a testing point of view that they're failing. The limitations are that we just can't manufacture it. One, we can't manufacture anything smaller than that. Um, and two, the, the limitations with UCI as well. So um, if we could get rid of them, I don't think you could, you would need to obviously tweak the design. Like there is, there is layout change that need to happen to accommodate not having seat stays. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not the end of the world. We had, um, before my time, this is a, a bit of a, um, around the water cooler story, but it's true. Uh, we had, we had a, a claim for, I think it was a soloist. Um, and it was a warranty claim and we came back and we wanted to test the theory out. So we had one of our QC guys basically cut um, both seat stays out of that bike. And I think he rode it around for six months and it was totally fine. So this was back in the soloist days of, of the company. So um, the seat stays are there to support the seat stays in a way, depending on the circumstance of what the bike is. So it is, there is like kind of caveats to what I'm saying, but um, yeah, seeing, seeing the photos, I got bombarded with them. Uh, when I woke up and um, it was, it's not surprising um, to see that uh, from like when you're, when you're boots on the ground working on the engineering of it. And it's kind of nice that everyone's picked up on it. It's like, hey, that's kind of amazing. Um, because even if you're looking at a featherweight frame that they're, they're a little bit more robust than, than we give them credit for. So you said that the seat stays are basically there you know, primarily to support the seat stays. I mean, and because the UCI requires them, which I guess technically speaking means that Stephen finished on a bike that was not UCI legal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Potentially. 
Um, hmm. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of engineering, though, because, I mean, yes, you have to incorporate those elements into the design. Um, but how much do they really do? Because you said that without that one, you know, that, with that one completely missing, Stephen was saying that, um, you know, the bike rode a little soft, essentially, like it was yet an extra compliant bike. Um, so how much of a role structurally do they really play in this, you know, as yet unreleased presumably R series road bike that you guys have coming out? Uh, quite, quite minimal. Um, there is, uh, there is basically a, a braced, if you, you're bracing effectively, um, higher up in the seat tube. Um, so I would say that, um, removing, removing the stays, you would potentially lose I would say less than less than five percent in in bottom bracket stiffness and head tube stiffness from that. So not like within the margin of error of measurement, um, you increase an added bonus of not having seat stays is you increase compliance, which is something we're always trying to work with. Um, and part of our ethos is is I I think there's unexplored, not unexplored, unut underutilized uh, shape optimization in frames like. You, I don't think at this point we need to look at a widget for compliance. We can look at just fundamental first principles of how things are built to add compliance into a frame and make a comfortable frame. Um, and think about how you want a seat tube to move to add compliance. Have, having having such a large bracing angle, which is why you're seeing you know frames now. With one of the reasons why you see them drop seat stays is to try and to increase that leverage. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's difficult to put an exact number on it because we obviously haven't tested. I didn't we didn't take a frame and cut seat days out and do a back to back test. But um, well, now you want to, of course you have to. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The buzz in the engineering because we're all still remote um, in the engineering group chat we've got is is is, is something that we should, we want to do. Um, I think where we we this I think there's two main things that have us potentially an advantage for that situation. Um, that oversized bottom bracket area uh, with BB right, even not necessarily BB right specifically, but having such a large um, bottom bracket down tube to bottom bracket to seat tube transition into chain stays, um, a lot of the low parts you see from um, under pedaling and under sprinting go through those and, tra and transfer through those. So the larger you have of an area there, the more load it's able to to take. Um, so, if you think of a situation where, if you're looking at something like I don't know, a 68 mil BSA bottom bracket, where it's quite narrow, um, you're potentially relying on the seat stays more than you would, and the chain stay, uh, particularly that bracing angle through there to to add stiffness to that bottom bracket. Um, and also, we during the development stage. Um, we obviously have our own internal testing outside of ISA, but um, to basically, we, once we go through pilot, um, to say, yes, we can move into mass production with these bikes, we, we test above ISO. There's not a linear scale, so I can't say it's like, hey, this specific test, um, every test we do is 10 or 15 or 20%. Um, but across the spectrum with ISO, um, it is either an increase in the load case or an increase in the, the fatigue cycle. Um, because it's ISO is pretty pretty uh, it's good, but there's there's things that it doesn't encapture uh, 
or encapsulate or represent in real life circumstances. So I think testing a bit above with, with how we do it, that, that played into this situation as well as having an oversized bottom bracket area. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, obviously it, it you know, it, it, well, like you were saying, you were having some, some interesting uh, internal chat amongst the engineering staff as far as what, you know, what a bike would look like without seat stays or how it would be, you know, how it would perform. I mean, certainly, you know, outside of UCI limitations, I would have to imagine that you all have just sort of dreamed up what bikes could be without, you know, all the structural elements that are required. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, from an aero point of view, we did in, in the P5X. Um, that was, there's, there's more negatives from a performance aspect of having seat stays and there are positives from, from weight to, to aero. Um, so removing more of those elements and trying to, to optimize the elements that actually transfer load, then your, your weight, I mean, it's, and it's nothing new. If you look back to, um, a couple of other brands have, have explored this as well outside of UCI, um, a couple of, a couple of, even the smaller hand-built, um, bikes have looked at that as well. So it's, it, it truly is, um, kind of protecting, uh, the tradition of the sport, which is totally fine. Like, I think the, you look at the Peloton go past and it's, it's, it's a nice thing to view. Um, whereas if you look at a triathlon, it's a bit like, okay, this is, this is the bleeding edge technology, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's not as aesthetically pleasing to some as, as a classic road bike. Um, yeah, the, it's, there's more advantages to not having seat stays if you design from the start to that than there is in, in having them. So Interesting. I mean, much in the way that we have triathlon bikes that are designed without any UCI considerations in mind at all, do you think that at any point someone will go through the time and expense and trouble of developing a road bike then? that ignores UCI requirements, if it can be substantially better than what is currently UCI legal? Um, I would hope so. I think what Specialized have done with the Athos is, is quite interesting in, in outside, I mean, absolutely hats off, kudos to them. I think that's it's a great bike. And I think as an industry, we should be you know, able to recognize competitive bikes that are great. And I think that is really, really nice. Um, I think it's quite interesting from a marketing point of view what they did where it's like it's not UCI legal. Um, it's it's difficult. It is really difficult to, to justify it internally um, because of the weight that you know Grand Tour teams have um, and and the exposure that they get. Um, it would be it would be difficult from a commercial standpoint. I think um, from an engineering standpoint, I think. Uh, it's something we should do. Um, I think it'd be great to explore what aero possibilities we can get out of a road bike, um, more so than before we start to explore it from a weight point of view. Um, even, even, and keeping it relatively, um, classic looking, not, not something as extreme as a P5X. Um, but there's, I think there's, there's definitely, there's definitely room there. So I would, I would, urge all of my competitor colleagues to try and get out there and do something like that and and almost you know force the hand of uci to be like hey let's 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 step back and take a realistic view of what these rules are 
Um, so I'm part of, uh, myself and a colleague here, are part of WFSGI, so um, there's constant discussions about weight limits um, and we're actively trying to, to lobby through WFSGI to simplify the rules um, around frame design, but it's, it's a, it's a slow moving beast. So it's, it's, it takes a long time to, to, um, to get anything through, which is, that's totally fine. It's a massive organization with, with an enormous amount of, um, influence and pull. So I, I can, I understand why it takes so long, but, um, I think it's, we're slowly, I think we're slowly walking towards hopefully a simplification of the UCI rules, which allows um, brands, big or small, it's not exclusive to how much money you have, um, to try and experiment a little bit with, with road bikes. Got it. Uh, but that's totally separate to the commercial side. <laughs> so. uh, just, just for those of you who are listening who are not familiar, WF, WFSGI is World Federation of Sporting Goods Industry. So it's sort of just like the big, I guess, trade industry of just sort of all the not just bikes, it's just all the sporting goods. So it's a, definitely a, a quite quite a beast. Um, well, anyway, Scott, I know that, you know, as a company, Cervelo has a history of certainly kind of pushing boundaries and doing some kind of after hours experimentation and that sort of thing. If, if it, if it helps at all, I mean, I'm, I'm, you can count on me for, you know, I can, I'm happy to kick in, you know, 20, 30 bucks to the cause to see, to see you all kind of like, you know, in, in the lab, just, you know, trying to cook it up something a little bit odd. I would, I would love to see what could come out of this if, you know, if you were actually afforded the time and, and resources to, to, to just kind of explore a little bit. Because if nothing else, it would just be an absolutely fascinating design exercise. I think so too. And I think um, it's as much as uh, this industry hasn't really been affected by COVID, um, it's, it's been, uh, it's just been, it's been difficult for the last 18 months to try and, um, operate under normal circumstances like you're remote um especially for us in a in a move to re relocation california so there's it, it's going to be uh hopefully by the end of this year everything's normalized and we can start to we can start to look at um not, not kick off project california again but something along those lines where we can start you know looking at skunk works projects again because it's um it's definitely exciting it's really really exciting cool well fingers crossed we'll well, I'll, I'll check in with you in a few months and see where, see where things are at. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Please do. Well, cool. Scott, thanks for taking the time to kind of talk us through some of that. And like, again, I mean, it's just a, a fascinating outcome that came out of a very unfortunate situation. But, you know, maybe something good will come out of it. We'll see. So, Dave, I don't know if you are into airplanes at all, but... Um, Many years ago, there was a situation with, um, I believe it was an American Air Force pilot, maybe it was Navy, I can't remember, but there was an F-15 that was involved in a mid-air incident that essentially sheared off the entire left wing. And the pilot, I mean, they knew it was, the, the pilot knew that he had, had been involved in a mid-air collision, um, didn't realize that he was missing a wing, still managed to fly and land the plane, hmm. which... You know, I thought of that situation right away when I saw this picture of that Cervelo because, again, this is something that shouldn't, like intuitively shouldn't work, but does. Um, and it turns out in the situation of that F-15, like there was enough, like essentially lift redundancy in the body of that plane that it didn't really need both wings to fly. And it seems like we sort of have a similar situation with this new Cervelo, which again, Scott, wasn't 
you know, it wasn't at liberty to reveal the official name um, or when it's actually going to be officially released. I mean, it's just, you know, it's presumably, it seems like the new R5. So I guess we'll just call it the new R5. But um, it seems like, you know, again, like according to Scott, those seats days really aren't, you don't need them for anything. Like we're not much anyway. Um, but the question that I asked him about, you know, whether you could design a bike, you know, sort of in the way that TT bikes and tri bikes have kind of diverged in some ways. Um, the idea that I presented to him of designing a road bike that just ignored UCI rules and maybe just went without seat states and seat states entirely. I mean, if, if they don't really do very much at all, and they're really only there to satisfy UCI rules, would it be kind of cool to have road bikes that just didn't care about UCI rules? Quite likely, yes. It would be nice, but I, I think uh, the reality is is that so much of uh, the road market is still controlled by what people see on TV and what people see their pros using, and that uh, I worry that such a such a unicorn would not be financially viable, uh, at no. least not from a company the size of Cervelo. You know, they've got uh, you know many shareholders or, or stakeholders involved to to please and uh i think a bike that that pursues such a potentially niche market probably isn't gonna please everyone well i guess the thing that i was asking scott about and the thing that i wonder about is i mean yes i mean cervello now is under the pawn umbrella um so it's like you know a bunch of whole brands a bunch of brands together a bunch of big brands together um you know lots of people counting the money and this seems like the sort of thing that they maybe could have had a little bit more liberty to explore when they were more independent. Um, but at the same time, Cervelo also has a history of, you know, kind of pushing things, I would say. Um, and it does seem to me that, it, you know, for a company that seems to have so much of its identity tied up in kind of advancing engineering, uh, on the, especially on the road bike front, um, I do wonder if they actually could potentially make an argument for a bike that didn't have a road bike that didn't have seat stays if it really were appreciably better than what we have now. Yeah. I think I think so. Um but it's a tough one because it is a tough one. You know who's yeah, you're basically ruling out anyone that ever wants to race it. So at that point you're you're basically creating a performance product for someone that doesn't necessarily need the performance. Um, so well, yeah, it's. I mean, you know, we talk about performance. Not that there's anything the wrong with that, but yeah, yeah. We, well, we talk about performance all the time. You know, in terms of aerodynamics, stiffness, weight, that sort of thing. And you know, he did say that aerodynamically, seat stays are just not great. Um, it'd be better to just not have them, uh, and I think that seems pretty obvious. Um, Weight-wise, I actually don't know if it would be much lighter because you would have to reinforce the bottom end some more a little bit to have, you know, if you're to eliminate the seat stays entirely. But the real appeal seems to be that you could potentially make a bike that's a lot more comfortable. Just, you know, as he said, it's why we have so many bikes with dropped seat stays. It's, you know, it's partially in in an effort to make rear ends more comfortable. So, yeah, like so like if you could have a bike that was just hyper comfortable and still really stiff and light i don't know like i i kind of wonder if there might be a market like in a way i mean as as i said to scott you know this seems like the sort of thing that a bunch of people at, at cervello might have to kind of investigate kind of after hours um but you know i, I did tell him i would contribute 20 bucks to the cause so 
Yeah, good. yeah hope, hopefully that'll that goes go, a That'll way. go pretty far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'll buy, yeah. what, like four minutes of electricity or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, yeah, there, I think there are, is a market out there. And I think some brands have uh, proven as such, like an open mind comes to comes to mind. Uh, not intended, but uh, that's, that's a, you know, a, a comfort-focused endurance road frame that wasn't built for racing. It was built for the everyday road rider. Uh, and yeah, I think other endurance bikes on the market as well, you know, I, I guess they use Paru Bay to sell them, but a lot of those endurance road bikes are intended for a customer that's not, not, uh, expected to go racing. So I think there is a market out there, but I don't know, a bike without seat stays seems like a, a long stretch to enter with an endurance market. For. It, it would be pushing it. But again, like, you know, with this whole, like you, with the UCI weight limit, for example, you know, Scott even mentioned, you know, he, he, he threw some props at the, the specialized ethos just because, you know, while technically speaking, the frame is legal because you know, it's UCI legal because it, you know, satisfies all the, all the, the dimensional guidelines. Um, you know, if you put a pretty reasonably high end build on that, like, it's, I mean, it drops below the 6.8 kilo mark pretty easily, even with accessories and, you know, pedals and everything. Um, and there clearly is then a market for a bike that is just ultra light and just rides really well and feels really good for people who just absolutely do not care about UCI anything. Um, so yeah, it makes me, it makes me wonder. It's an interesting thought exercise. And I do hope that Cervelo maybe at least potentially explores it a little bit, just if for no other reason, then it'd be really interesting just to see what would happen. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think it'd be cool to see, but I'm, I'm skeptical as to whether we'll see it from Cervelo. I would tend to agree with you, but nevertheless, I would like to see someone try just, just to know, I would just like to know. Uh, and either way, I would have to think that, you know, as soon as all of those folks are ready or allowed to go back into the office and start playing around with test machine machines and stuff like that, I guarantee you on that first day, someone's going to take a hacksaw to a, to an R frame and just, you know, hack off the seat days and just start doing some testing just to see what would happen. Yep. I'm sure we'll see it on weight weenies soon enough of just people removing their seat stays along with every second rotor bolt. Well, yeah, because yeah, I mean, Steve, if Stephen Croiswick can get away with it, I mean, surely like someone with more yeah. modest power output can do yeah. it. So yeah, don't do totally, this at home. Totally safe. Totally safe. All right. Moving on to the second main topic that we have for this week's Nerd Alert, uh, the Stage 5 Individual Time Trial. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, this was sort of like the big public debut of Cannondale's new time trial bike. And while, again, this is another bike that does not have a name, does not have an official release date, um, Cannondale was at least willing to talk about it. So let's go ahead and hear from Nathan Berry of Cannondale to get some more details on this new time trial bike. And then Dave, you and I will discuss this on the other side of this interview. So take a listen. I can't tell you a name. I can't tell you when it's coming to the public. Um, it is... We are constantly developing new product, as most product development companies are. Um, this is the latest iteration of time trial development for our company. Um, and as such, we want to put that technology under our professional riders as soon as possible if we think it gives them a technological advantage. And that's what we have done. So at present, it is classified. It is approved by the UCI as a prototype. So it is listed as Annandale prototype something on the sticker um that's about all i can give you in terms of descriptive but i can talk about the technology behind it and our engineering philosophies and all of those juicy tech details 
I just can't give you the glossy poster details. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, lo- looking at it, I mean, the bike is obviously very, very different from the previous time trial bike. Um, I mean, this one looks very, I guess, System 6-esque, I would say. I mean, kind of looks like it borrows a lot of elements from your aero road bike. Um, would it be safe to say that that bike was used almost kind of sort of a starting point for this new time trial bike? Or did you kind of start with the existing TT bike? Uh, no, your, your first assumption is correct. Yeah, we basically went into this with System 6 as our framework. Um, you know, we put a lot of effort into that bike to make it a class-leading aero road bike. And the laws of physics don't change when you put a different handlebar and change the geometry slightly. You've still got to move through the air as quickly as possible. So, yeah, that was basically our starting point. We were able to leverage a lot of what we learned on System 6. And, you know, we obviously wind tunnel test a lot of different product. And so through testing, I could tell that, you know, even as a road bike, System 6 was basically on par with the leading edge of time trial bike frame sets as it was. So, you know, that sort of served as the perfect place to kick off development for a new time trial bike. So, I mean, based on what you've said then, I mean, it, it essentially is a System 6 with sort of modified geo for and, and different handlebars for time trialing then. Um, if you look closely, there are some details we've changed. I mean, one of the things this enabled us to do was uh, look at the System 6 and where there were areas that we would like to improve upon it and basically focus our attention to those. So, you know, there are parts of the bike we knew work really well. So uh, the the seat post, for example, is compatible with uh, System 6 because that part of the bike is working really well. The TT bike has modified head because we're doing different geo and different fit. And there's a whole bunch of geo stuff I can talk about later. But um, things like the front of the bike, if you have good enough photos, you'll see the the fork crown head tube interface of the TT bike is quite radically different to what we implemented on System 6. Um, and that was probably less about ultimate aerodynamic gains, but more about saving weight. So one of the things you're sort of, you're constantly up against here is improving performance in general. Obviously aerodynamics is a big focus for TT bikes, but it's not the only focus. And um, one of the things we learned out of System 6 was things like the fork crown has, it's a very efficient fork crown for moving through the air, but there's some dead material in there. So basically we challenged ourselves to take away all the dead material without adding any drag to the front of the bike. That was really the, the challenge that we set ourselves there. So it's really at the front that it's changed the most. Um, it also has a completely different cable routing mechanism. So if you're familiar with System 6 and Super 6 Evo, they have the same routing system which is outside the bearings or outside the upper bearing into the frame uh the tt bike uses a different setup at the front end um and that is sort of leveraging technology in that we're trying to improve that and one of the things we were able to look at with system six is um making the whole front end narrower by bringing the cables inside the bearing and streamlining basically from the cable path entering the stem and then into the frame. Got it. Um, I want to come back to the routing in just a minute, but before I forget, I kind of want to just cut to the chase a little bit here because, um, I mean, the the previous TT bike that you had, uh, I mean, it was admittedly getting pretty long in the tooth. Um, it'd been around for, for a fair bit. Um, you know, I think a lot of people would say that it, 
it would definitely, certainly with advancements that have been coming from other brands, it was starting to fall behind in terms of performance. Um, can you talk about how much more efficient this new TT bike is aerodynamically versus the old one? Uh, and also, did it lose any weight? Sure. Um, so on the old bike, the old bike was previous design, and that is actually predates my being at the company, um, which is probably why you see such a sort of stark contrast in design philosophies between Super Slice and System 6 compared to, say, this new platform and System 6, which are far more similar. I think that bike was first released or first raced in 2017, so it's about four years old now. It's actually not as outdated as in terms of performance as perhaps people maybe believe. Um, we benchmarked it against, uh, when, when we were developing this bike, you know, we benchmark against competition. And the Super Slice is, the current Super Slice is still um, competitive with all current World Tour bikes. There are some that are slightly faster. There are some that are markedly slower. So um, the efficiency in terms of drag is not too bad. So in terms of developing a new bike, obviously we wanted to leverage everything we now know about aerodynamics. We've improved a lot since System 6 and Evo. So there was more to be gained there, but you are always chasing sort of a diminishing tree of of like fruits of your labor when it comes to TT bikes. Once you have... Um, you know, going back a bit, we had, you know, round base bars and lots of external cables and external rim brakes. And, you know, those things have very rapidly disappeared. So, you know, the low hanging fruit's kind of gone. Um, so then you get to our overall design philosophy, which is making things that are fast, not making things that are low drag. And that's a pretty important distinction just in terms of a holistic design approach. We can design something that's low drag, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good bike. And I guess that sort of uh, those trade-offs are more evident if you look back at the maybe 10 to 15 year development of aero road bikes or even older time trial bikes going back to the 80s and 90s, which were very skinny but very floppy as like a as a general rule. And so you were trading off a lot of ride handling, stiffness, all of those things that are nice about bikes just in terms of drag. So we don't want to do that and we don't want to add too much weight. So with this bike, it was optimize the aerodynamics as much as we can. So, you know, we make a small difference there, but making the bike lighter was going to be a big area where we, where we could step forward. The current Super Slice platform is not a particularly lightweight bike. Um, I think... Some of its aerodynamics come from a lot of the members being very skinny, which, you know, helps if things are just not there, there's less air to displace. The downside is, you know, it, you need a lot more material to make it work. So the Super Slice uh, has a lot of extra material in it just to keep the stiffness at a sort of minimum level for a TT bike. So this new platform, I think the... Uh, the EF Nippo team are reporting the new chassis, so excluding the wheels, but cockpit and frame set, et cetera, is about 300 grams lighter than the old bike. So it's a pretty big step that we were able to take there. So uh, as a platform, we're looking at just 
a little bit lower drag and quite a bit less weight. So that's a pretty pretty solid step up in performance that we're we're pretty happy with how that's tracking. And then are the riders reporting any difference in terms of you know how how stiff the bike feels, either in terms of pedaling or handling stiffness? Uh, the feedback we've gotten has all been really positive. Um, we benchmark during development, like a layup development, we have stiffness targets that we want to hit. Um, the TT bike is TT bikes in general tend to be slightly lower than road bikes, just the nature of how they're ridden and handling and tube layouts, etc. Um, but higher than its predecessor, so it's stiffer than the bike that preceded it, which the team also didn't have any complaints with. Um, Super Slice had a kind of rough beginning, but has become actually far more far more liked by the riders on the team through its life. So this is kind of just an improvement in every facet okay. there. Um, you mentioned just a few minutes ago about um, how your goals for this new TT bike were not specifically to, were not specifically to make it more aero, is was to make it faster. And when you said that, the first thing that comes to mind to me were um, was sort of what you're hearing from a variety of wheel companies, I guess, zip in particular, um, you know, making a big deal of their, you know, what are they calling it? Like total system efficiency or something like that. Um, so in, in light of that, if you're saying that, you know, there certainly are diminishing returns in terms of aerodynamics for TT bikes. And, and that, that intuitively seems to be the case. I mean, bikes have gotten awfully sleek in the last few years. I'm not really sure how much faster they could be. Um, so what did you look at to make this bike faster than if there were not a whole lot of gains to be made aerodynamically? Um, most, mostly weight. So the, the drag is obviously a big problem and the, the two trade off a little bit because uh, the inherent complexity with bicycles is that your external surface is your structural member. So like a car or an aeroplane, you have a structural member and then you wrap it in outer body work or a skin or whatever it might be. So on a plane, you have spars and ribs that carry load, and then you have a skin that moves the air. On a bike, you can't do that. So every time you change a tube shape, you change something about the stiffness. And then inherently, if you if you start taking out stiffness, you add weight. So there is that balance there. Um, I guess the thing for us was, you know, we wanted as much aerodynamics as possible, but understanding where that sort of Balls and also the timeline we had to develop it. It was probably, you know, it was not an infinite timeline to spend developing these things. It's a relatively contracted development timeline. So it's where do you get the most fruits of your labor? Um, and, you know, there's a, you've probably heard me talk before about the System 6 and Evo 3 about the trade off between weight and aerodynamics. And it goes back and forth, and it's probably still not that well understood by most of the cycling community. I'm sure the the mental weighting of these two things is significantly more on the mass side than on the drag side. Um, the interesting thing with time trials is that even for classically indoctrinated road cyclists that don't like aero road bikes and they want to ride 6.8 kilos or nothing, and when you put them on a TT bike, they're suddenly like, weight doesn't matter. I don't know if it's apparent to a lot of the community, but TT bikes are not 6.8 kilos. They probably never have been, and most of them are not even close. Like 8.5 to 9 kilos is entirely reasonable for a, for 
professional level DT bike. So it's it's a weird dichotomy where like you're doing a time trial and suddenly like everyone's just like, forget about weight, make me fast. And then you, <laughs> then they get on the road bike and they're just like, I want my 25 millimeter wheels and I want this round cockpit and I want my round frame. And you're like, you do realize you're not riding that much slower. <laughs> so, you know, the reality is the physics are still there. So on a flat time trial, weight doesn't matter that much. And if you go back maybe like 10, 15 years, especially a lot of time trials, especially in Grand Tours, were quite flat. Um, and one of the things you're seeing more and more now is these more challenging time trials. You go back to uh, Bergen World Champs a couple of years ago. It was like 40 kilometers of flat and then three kilometers at 10% gradient or something. And I think that was the first time we've really seen this idea of swapping bikes for the climb. You started to see people having this debate about, do I swap to a road bike for the climb because I'm climbing more efficiently and all those sorts of things. And um, that sort of starts to underpin this climbing performance. Now, some of that is like geometry, rider preference. There's like a whole bunch of psychology and biomechanics that I'm, I don't deal with. But just in terms of the, the physics, it's like if you're going up a 10% grade, these guys go really fast, but carrying an extra kilo, I'm just kind of going off the top of my head here, but for a pro rider, an extra kilogram is worth, say, three to four watts at 10% grade. So, you know, it's not much, but some of these time trials are being decided by seconds. And if you're a GC rider, you can't afford to pass up, you know, 10 seconds or whatever it might be at the end of your time trial. So it's it's kind of responding to how some of the courses are changing now. TT bikes need to be a little bit more versatile. Um, and, you know, if you can't reduce drag, but you make something lighter, then that's a win. You know, if, you, if you're improving one thing and the other thing stays the same, then that's a win-win. I mean, it almost seems like we're seeing this kind of convergence a bit in terms of road bikes and TT bikes in the sense that road bikes are getting progressively more aero and more like TT bikes in, in terms of a lot of the features and how they're designed and that sort of thing. Whereas it sounds like TT bikes are now, you know, looking a little bit more at weight if possible, uh, while still maintaining those aerodynamics because those TT courses are becoming a little bit more like road courses. Yeah. I think that will probably never trend too close together just because the the time trial is inevitably like in, in, an individual sure, thing. And of so, course you have the the trade-off. I don't know if anyone's ever shown you like, uh, you know, like course projections of time saving for like an aero bike versus a lightweight bike or whatever. Whenever you do those things, you spend so much more time at speed that aerodynamics always wins. And so time trial will always skew in that direction because you can kind of do the maths and be like, all right, I lose five seconds on the climb. I gain 25 seconds on the rest of the course. That's pretty easy maths. Right. Uh, and I guess speaking about those projections, uh, you and Dave Rome had a very detailed discussion about that very thing uh, a number of podcasts ago. Um, so for anyone listening right now, if you're coming into this uh, show via iTunes or Spotify or whatever, uh, make sure you check out the um, the podcast article link uh, at cyclingtips.com and we'll make sure we post a link to that previous episode as well so you can kind of follow up with Nathan there too. So anyway, sorry, keep going. No, plug the back catalog. That's good. Um, yeah, Dave and I had a good chat about weight and how it interplays and there's probably be some similar talking points here, but it's, um, 
it's in, it's important. It's also quite complex, so it it's worth revisiting. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of where you're chasing. On the road bike side, though, you do bring up an interesting point in terms of convergent design. Um, as we start to see, I guess, just engineering evolve, you have seen in road bikes a little bit more convergence. I guess a good example is Specialized have basically dropped the Venge from their product lineup because their what was traditionally their lightweight category, if you like, but whatever, the Tarmac and the Venge kind of existed in these two silos. And the obvious uh, design sort of goals is you want to make the aero bike lighter so that it's more versatile and you want to make the lightweight bike lower drag so that it's more versatile. And at some point, those two lines are going to intersect. Obviously, it's not perfect because, you know, uh, I guess the ASOS is the obvious one of like, this is what happens if you ignore one of those parameters. But Specialized themselves say that that's a terrible race bike because it's just too slow. So if you're talking about racing and racing is about going fast, then, you know, you are talking about optimizing these two things together. Well, there's other parameters as well, but at least in terms of a frame, effectively, it's weight and drag. Um, Can you talk about any of the specific features that you were able to add onto this new bike that were not featured on the previous bike? I mean, one of the things you mentioned was, was routing. Um, can you talk about how exactly that's done here? Cause you said that the lines do are, are run fully internally. Now they run through, you know, the upper headset bearing, whereas on the system six is it's external, um, well outside of the upper bearing anyway. Um, so can you, can you go into some detail as to what we're looking at up there? Um, so we were looking at ways of sort of improving the front end and, you know, improving this routing situation in general. And, uh, my colleague, Jonathan, who, um, if you have been to launches, you've probably met him. He and I work together on all of our road products. He had the idea of, well, a triangular-shaped steerer tube, basically. So the bike has a somewhat triangular steerer tube that allows the cables to go around the steerer tube in an inch and an eighth upper bearing. So it's, it's I guess it falls into the category of non-round steerer tubes. Trek have one, BMC have one, several other brands have got variations on this design but basically opening a cavity between your steerer tube and your bearing to let the the cables pass through so that was kind of being looked at for future road technology and ways that we could update the front end of our bikes one of the obvious limitations with the current system six design is that we have a steerer stop because we can't have the bike severing its own brake lines so we need to limit the steering angle to allow the cable to be outside the bearing. You put the cable inside the bearing, then you basically have free rotation. So that's, that's I mean, there's a trade-off there, but we decided that's probably a good direction to head. Um, the upshot of all that is the front end gets quite small. So we take away any extra width because you kind of have the cables just wrapping nicely around the, the thinner steerer tube. And then the other big one is the fork crown. So the System 6 has like a dropped down tube that kind of hugs the back of the fork crown. And we've basically removed all that dead material. So the, the structural path of your down tube is from the down tube to the bearing because that's where the loads are transferred from. So you can imagine that any material that's not on that sort of straight line from the bottom bracket to the headset bearing, that's either, you know sort of adding weight because it's structurally less efficient. So we basically tried to preserve that 
load path into the bearing and then shape the fork crown and the front face of the down tube in that area to move the air as efficiently as what we were doing before, but just without having to fill it with non-structural material. So that's really where you'll see the biggest differences on this bike. Uh, what about the brakes now? I mean, it, it. I think it's safe to say this bike is probably going to be disc only because... Seemed... I can say okay. that. Um, how does that present itself in terms of designing aerodynamically? Because I mean, you do have just more stuff hanging out there. Um, so how are you able to improve aerodynamic performance of this new bike relative to the old one when you're... I mean, yes, <clears throat> there there was uh, disc brakes on the old bike, um, but there were also rim brakes um, available. So how do you improve one versus the other? I guess I'll, I'll give some background info there. I'll go way back to when we did the rim brake version of Super Slice. So this, when, I guess when Super Slice was first introduced, it, it sort of got pushed a little bit because of component like getting components to fit a disc brake TT bike didn't quite exist at the time. But basically when it came out, disc brakes on time trial bikes were not a thing. Um, and that's why they ended up being a rim brake and a disc brake version. But I took them to the tunnel and I tested a disc brake version. And then I took the brakes off that, tested it with zero brakes, and then put rim brakes on it and then tested that. And I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like two watts at, 30 miles an hour, 48 kilometers an hour difference between a brake system and no brakes. So having disc brakes or rim brakes was exactly the same. And the two versions of Super Slice are basically identical. I think the disc brake is maybe borderline faster. It gives you different wheel options. So as a bike, you can play around with some things differently, but basically they're the same. Um, and, you know, at the time, some people pointed to the super slice setup because it has an external rim brake on the front. And it's like, Oh, that's not very good. And I think I tested it with one of the tri rig brakes. You might be familiar yep. with, with like the sort of nose coney thing yep. on the front. They are a lot better than a standard brake actually. But the important thing was removing all of that stuff and having a bare frame with no brakes was only about two Watts quicker. So basically the, best possible case you could do for integrating your brake system is two watts. And that doesn't factor in what actually happens when you do an integrated internal rim brake, for example, which was sort of the, the dominant sort of design philosophy for about 10 years, which is the brake has to fit inside something. And so the whole volume gets bigger. Like if you look at the volume of a fork of like an external rim brake bike versus one of these TT bikes with a built-in brake, the, the whole fork is about twice the size in the area of the brake because it has to be because you have to fit all this mechanism in there. Um, and so, yes, it's hidden, but it's, you know, the whole thing is bigger and all of that air has to be displaced. And so you're not really going to be saving that much. Um, and then on the back end, some bikes have like recessed, you know, V brakes or cantilever brakes or whatever in underneath the chainstays. Some just have a, you know, like the Shimano direct mount under the chainstay thing, which that that one's a bit of a con actually. That's been a bug there for a while for me because I think the main reason it gained traction was because when you see a bike on a website in profile, that brake is behind the chainring, so it's invisible. <laughs> But if you turn the bike front on and you're the air, all you see is just like a big chunk of metal hanging underneath the bottom bracket. 
they're not invisible. And in most cases, they add more drag than a seat stay mounted rim brake. So those are not that useful. Um, so in terms of disc brakes on time trial bikes, as far as I'm concerned, the brake system doesn't really make a difference in terms of like your net drag, like your net aerodynamics, not so much. In fact, I would choose the disc brake system just for the flexibility because fork crown head tube is a really integral part of managing the flow over the front of your bike. And if you have to put a rim brake there, even if you're integrating it, like the complexity involved to pull that off is just mind blowing. And that's, that's like separating designing these brake systems in the first place. I'm sure you've ridden some of these bikes. Most cantilever style TT brakes were absolutely terrible. And then they're on carbon rims so that they're even more terrible. And, you know, hats off to some of the systems that were developed, like uh, the BMC time machine. I'm very poor at their naming convention, but that had this weird, like, uh, like cam style braking mechanism in the head stem to like, disconnect the cables and like it was an interesting piece of engineering but the complexity involved to pull that off is just you're not really getting anything for it in the end uh, well i guess that's the other where uh, other place i wanted to go to with your your discussion about making the bikes faster overall i mean there is obviously still a lot of debate in the road world uh road, like road stages anyway as far as the whole disc brake rim brake thing um and while i would I would I would certainly agree that in a lot of the situations, the rim brakes perform just fine, especially with you know modern pads, modern sidewall treatments, that sort of thing. Uh, and there is obviously a big weight advantage for time trial bikes, though. As you mentioned, you know, for all the extents that brands have gone to to hide mechanical rim brakes so as to keep things you know more aerodynamic and. Um, I guess it's not clear to me that they're really any lighter at that point because of that complexity. And then the other thing is that because those brakes end up working so poorly, um, in a lot of cases, it almost seems like you're losing a pretty core function of the bike in general. So um, from a designer standpoint, does the use of hydraulic, I mean, I guess hydraulic rim brakes would present some of this too, but does the use of hydraulic disc brakes really open things up for you in terms of just making the bike better for a TT bike? Uh, yeah, basically it's pretty much a win-win. Um, you were coming from systems that were complicated, expensive, heavy, bad at the job they were supposed to do. And you're moving to something that is efficient, like works well. It's better for routing because you have hydraulics. You don't have to deal with like table radius and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, for, in terms of a TT bike, disc brakes is basically a no brainer. I said from the beginning, I think when we had our very first discussion with EF about building a new TT bike and one of the topics that was approached with a bit of trepidation from our company was like, I hope they don't want to do another rim brake TT bike. And I just walked in and said, <laughs> if you ask me to make a TT bike with rim brakes, I'm probably just going to say no. It's, we're not doing it. There's just no, there's absolutely no benefit to be had there. Um, so yeah, disc brakes is makes the most sense on TT bikes out of everything. Okay. Um, you said a few minutes ago that when you did some of your wind tunnel testing that um, the difference between having no brakes on the frame versus, um, you know, that rim brake attached to the front versus disc brakes was only about two watts. Um, 
would it be possible, given UCI technical rules and that sort of thing, to integrate a disc brake into the frame in a manner that rim brakes have been integrated in TT bikes? Like, would there be an aerodynamic gain to be made there? Yeah, probably. Certainly it's something I've thought about in terms of like blue sky. And if not even from a performance stand of view, um, standpoint, from a aesthetic standpoint, it would be very cool if we could you know, integrate calipers into fork blades and chainstays and things like that. In terms of fairing calipers, I don't think there's a whole lot there. We sort of played around with a couple. They're not UCI legal. Obviously, you can't fair a brake. Um, a little bit of testing seems that the rear caliper, whilst it looks really exposed, it's so far downstream in the system and behind the rider's ankles and a bunch of other stuff that doesn't seem like fairing it does a whole lot. The front one, part of it's behind the fork, part of it has to be stuck out in the air because you need the other half of the caliper. So there's probably a little bit there, but as I said, like removing the brake system is only so much to gain. And part of that is coming from the rotor itself. So yeah, like there's probably a little bit we could do. And I like to think that as an industry, we can move forward to, you know, progress disc brakes a little bit more from where they are, which is just, you know, a right, thing floating right. on the outside. Um, but, you know, the, there's kind of like another level of complexity there, which is where these components come from in that Cannondale, whilst we used to make hydraulic brakes, we do not currently make braking systems. We use component manufacturers, braking systems, and you then have to get into like, who's going to make that system. And with integrated shifting and braking, it's harder to decouple them. So there are some complexities there from like a logistics standpoint, but you know, it would be interesting to pursue some of those things. You could see some pretty cool designs if you had calipers that were basically embedded into your frame. Hmm. Interesting. Um, speaking of progression, on the mountain bike side, uh, we've been seeing just an absolutely insane amount of acceleration and change in terms of geometry. Um, like you take a, a mountain bike, just even from you know four or five years ago, it's barely recognizable to what you have now. Just you know, we're talking about you know multiple whole degrees of head angle change, and you know huge differences, and like things like stack and reach, and seat tube angles, and wheel bases, chain stays. Like it's just all over the board. It's just absolutely exploding. Um, you know, on, on road bikes, I feel like things certainly have been super stable for quite a long time. I mean, it seems, you know, people have generally been very happy with road bike geometry. Um, is there any flexibility in terms of geometry on TT bikes, um, either in terms of what is possible and also what is allowed? And have you done anything different in that respect with this new bike? Uh, we have not done anything different on this bike. This bike basically carries over uh, at least the steering geometry from the, the super slice, uh, which is a little bit slacker than a road bike. I think it's 71.5 degree head angle. And some of that is to just sort of slow your steering down a little bit because your weight distribution is, it's actually quite a bit different. You have, depending on your size and how you set up your bike or whatever, you have a lot of weight over your front axle compared to a road bike. Um, it's a question that we have asked i guess road bike geometry is so fixed and tg tt geometry is often quite similar so there's not a lot of appetite to experiment there 
However, it is something we talk about within engineering is like, oh, it would be interesting to build some, you know, like some mules and test some pretty out there geometry in terms of what happens if you, you know, make like a really short reach bike or something. So you're extending your front center and some of those kinds of things to play with that weight balance a little bit more. Um, it's not it's not something that has a lot of appetite from professional racing at the moment, but it's certainly a, an interesting area. Um, and I guess part of it kind of comes back to as well, not many people ride TT bikes. So it's it's sort of a fairly, still a fairly niche area of interest. Well, assuming that this same aero platform that you have developed is going to be used for triathlon as well. Um, I mean, I don't even know if you can speak to that, but I mean, just making the assumption that that would be marketed to both segments. Um, would, would some sort of geometry change in that way make more sense for that market, perhaps? I mean, if you have, you know, riders who are on their, on, on these aero bikes for hours and hours on end, as opposed to, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes or something like that. Um, you know, would, would some sort of more dramatic handling change be beneficial there and, you know, for a market that is certainly less niche than time trialing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. In some ways I would say triathlon might be less sensitive to the geometry because often they tend to be more relaxed, which means you have less weight on the front. Um, and over the past few years, that's probably been really the only difference between sort of a hardcore TT bike and a triathlon bike, at least in marketing, is typically just stack or stack and reach. Triathlon bikes tend to be less aggressive because you have, one, a broader market spectrum, and most of those people are riding longer and have to run afterwards. So the idea of being super crunch doesn't work. As a brand, um, Cannondale is not hugely focused on the triathlon market and this product was specifically developed as a UCI legal TT bike. So when it reaches the market, I'm sure there are some triathletes that will be interested in it. As a triathlete, I would be choosing that because I like really aggressive geometry and I mostly race short course. So, you know, storage and things like that are less important. So some of that comes down to what sort of triathlete you are. I know in North America triathlon is very Ironman slash half Ironman centric. If you're in Europe, uh, Olympic distance or standard distance is far more common and more centered on ITU racing and those kinds of things. Um, so if you are somebody that's on the like shorter side of the spectrum, you don't need to carry a bunch of stuff. You don't need to carry as much water and food. You either are more aggressive or can be more aggressive because of your type of racing. So you can skew to something a little bit uh, longer and lower, then that's something that you could do. But as a design exercise, this is as a professional TT race machine, and then its applications elsewhere is kind of up to user groups, but its its sole, sole purpose was to be raced in TTs. Okay, fair enough. So, I mean, the, you may have sort of answered my next question uh, because one of the things I'm ask, uh, I'm wondering about is sort of portability or I guess transportability because we have seen, uh, I guess, you know, like the shiv, for example, comes, comes to mind right away with, um, you know, with handlebar extensions, base bar extensions that basically just come off. Um, and looking at the images that we have of this new TT bike that you have from Cannondale, it almost looks like the base bar extensions come off 
to some extent, or it could it could just be the way the the way the the aero extensions are attached, uh, the clamp mechanism. It's a little bit hard for us to tell. Um, but has has there been any any engineering thought paid on this new bike to how easily it you know this bike could be put in a box or a case? I'll tackle this from two angles: one, the transport, and two, the cockpit. So on the on the transport side, because it was designed as a pro bike. We provide our team, every rider on the team gets a home bike, a race bike, and a spare bike. So they never travel with their TT bike. So as part of us being a technical partner with the team, we provide that sort of equipment. So the bikes don't really get put in cases and boxes. Um, to package it, so the short answer is no, it has not been designed in the way that the Shiv has, or I believe the P5X has a cool like folding handlebar as well. Um, and those are triathlon specific bikes. They're not UCI legal. And so they are catering to that audience. This one less so. So if you wanted to put it in a box, you would have to go down the old route of dropping the fork and twisting the stem, which is not so hard because it's, there's a, it's like zero spaces. It's in line with the top tube. So it's not super hard to do, but the intent is that, you know, it's not going to be used in that way most of the time. Um, as for the cockpit itself, so it's a Vision cockpit. So Vision have been a partner of ours with EF for several years now. I'm not going to quote a number. Jonathan Gehring can quote those figures. But um, they are a technical partner with us. And one of the things from the beginning was leveraging their expertise with cockpits because designing a cockpit for a TT bike is almost a whole separate project in itself to get it right because there are a lot of really badly designed TT cockpits and there are there are some really good ones and some really terrible ones because you need adjustability the thing that makes a time trial bike or yeah I guess the time trial bike is the the frame set and wheels and all of that stuff but one of the things that makes the real difference is the posture that you ride it in and so flexibility of the cockpit to enable you to get into that fast posture is critical for getting performance out of a TT bike so we needed a cockpit that was sufficiently adjustable that it could deliver the fit requirements for all current and future riders that we would ever have on a pro team. So the bike basically uses the Vision TFA system, which uh, I think it's been out for a year or two maybe. Um, it has been modified, so the stem has some customizations to fit our specific platform. But the, the system itself is a derivative of the TFA. Um, for that reason, it has excellent pad X and Y positioning, tilt adjust, pitch adjust, reach adjust. Um, so it's, it's an excellent cockpit for that. In terms of what you have seen with the like looking like it's removable, um, the way the TFA works is it has a stem that sort of stretches and flattens out. And I think it's about... 100 millimeters wide basically the stem includes the mounting points for the pylons so when you're assembling it the whole base bar slides into the stem but you have to take different pieces off to get that to happen it's not like for travel you would just like pop some bolts and the the whole handlebar would disappear or something like that um it's a bit more rigid than that okay um the the one piece molded extensions that that we've seen on team bikes is that is that, a, is that a production thing or is that something custom made for the, for the team? Um, we're getting into vision territory here, so I don't know the exact specifics of it, but 
Um, it has become far more common the last few years, I guess, since uh, I guess Sky probably did it. They were probably co- still called Sky at the time when they first did some like 3D printed titanium custom extension things. So Vision have rolled that out to several of their teams. I know last year there were at least three Vision sponsored teams that were riding these molded fitted aero extensions. Um, I don't believe they are rider custom. I think they have several different versions that riders can choose from. But I shouldn't be quoted on that because it's a Vision product, not a Cannondale one. But basically the way that this bike is designed and this kind of comes from working with Vision as a technical partner is those extensions interface onto the existing base bar and pylons. So you, you know, you don't have to replace your whole cockpit to go to something like that. And it, they should be available aftermarket. I'm not entirely sure of how the UCI manages some of those things, but the general gist of the rule is everything has to be commercially available. So commercially available. <laughs> yeah. In theory, those bars will, you would, you or I would be able to purchase them and put them on our TFA setup. But yeah, the, the simple design solution is you design any custom extension to interface with your base bar. So bolt spacing lines up and you basically just take off the sort of stock adjustable system and then you bolt on this one piece molded system and go from there. And then underneath that, you still have your pitch adjust from the, um, from the pylons. Got it. This is actually one thing I meant to ask you earlier. Um, with, with the way wheel and tire sizes have been evolving over the last few years, I mean, not so much in TT, but certainly more so on the road. Um, is that something that you had to take into consideration when designing the shape of this new TT bike? I mean, how, how does, uh, how, what do you have to design around to accommodate, you know, potentially a wider or narrower setup while, you know, keeping the whole thing aerodynamically efficient? Where to begin? There's not too much to do with designing a bike to fit a specific wheel shape. From, from what we have seen, the level of interaction between a wheel and a frame based on tires is not too sensitive, at least within the range we're talking about. So, you know, you, you've got spacing between, say, chainstays, seat stays, fork legs, seat tube. So um, having your fork too close to your wheel is a problem, but with designing for sort of a bit of surplus clearance to your tire and then also like testing standards and ISO standards and all sorts of stuff. You tend to stay away from that on the fork. And then on the back end, uh, you don't, you obviously need to have sufficient gap between your seat tube and your tire for clearance. You don't want that to be too big or you'll start to get some cross flow in there. Um, but it's, it's actually not too bad. The, when it comes to wheel aerodynamics, and I'll say wheel in terms of, wheel and tire because you can't have one without the other on a bike that's actually moving. Um, one of the biggest drivers of aerodynamic performance is separation from the leading half of the wheel. So when I say leading half, the bit that has a tire as a leading edge and then the trailing half being the bit that has the tire as the trailing edge. So on the leading half of the wheel, separation is kind of governing your performance pretty heavily. And so that part of the wheel, no matter what you do to the bike, is always in clean air. And we've sort of seen uh, wind tunnel tests of just a wheel in a set of struts on its own versus in a bicycle as a system. You get 
you often get pretty good correlation between those two, and it's just because of those driving stall points and separation points on the rim. So there's not too much in terms of designing to fit a specific wheel or tyre. You definitely should think about your wheel and your tyre together, so that's a system that connects. As for the bike, not too bad. You obviously need the tyre clearance to ride whatever size tyre you want to ride, but for racing, you still don't want to go too big. Talking about tires and speed is like a whole nother thing. But the the like recent whole like um, bigger is faster kind of deal came out of if you pump a tire up to the same pressure and test it on a roller, a larger tire will have lower rolling resistance than a smaller tire. And it basically just comes down to hysteresis of the casing. But you don't ride big tires at the same pressure as small tires. One, that's the whole point. And two, big tires at the same pressure are stiffer than smaller tires because of the casing tension. So you have to lower the pressure just to get the same ride quality. And when you do that, you basically subtract the rolling resistance savings that you would have gotten anyway. So it's it ends up being a bit of a wash. Now. I'm not an expert in tire like testing and it starts to get complex because testing on a smooth roller is invalid because it doesn't deform the tire correctly. And then testing on the road is complex because you have environmental conditions and all sorts of stuff that muddy the waters. And if you're trying to measure one watt of difference between things on the real, like on real roads, it's just not going to happen. You don't have sensitivity for that. Um, so it gets a bit murky, but in general, um, my, my opinion on this is that for racing, 25s are probably still the best bet because you any rolling resistance that you might get going to a 28, you're going to offset with aerodynamic drag. Um, now, on a like rough course, that's like you put that out the window as the road gets rougher. But if you're on smooth pavement, um, I haven't seen any good data to date that sort of justifies sort of a step change in performance that would justify going to a bigger tire. So um, I believe this bike would fit 28s. Maybe it might depend on your rim size. I think it's designed to clear 28 millimeter tires with like a six millimeter clearance zone or something like that. So it'll probably oh, clear six millimeter clearance zone. I mean, you can, you can you know, shoehorn a 32 in there and take it to Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, we design our, our bikes with quite a bit of clearance. Um, four millimeters is ISO, so you can't sell a bike without four millimeters of clearance between the tire. And then we have designed for extra for paint, wheel misalignment, all those sorts of things, um, and to give customers extra tire clearance. So, you know, we design it to something that's pretty strict, and then that tends to give far more flexibility than that. So... Uh, yeah, you could probably run a 28 on this TT bike. Would you want to? Probably not. Okay. All right. Well, I'll go. We'll go ahead and title this podcast: Canada releases first ever gravel TT bike. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like Zip, you brought up Zip before. They have made some very interesting claims on their new wheels, um, which started with the 303. And I, I haven't seen a lot of good data from them to show like how they're making these conclusions. Um, I hope they do put it out because if they've done some experiments, I'd love to see it. Tire tech is interesting. It's not my area of expertise, but 
it's interesting stuff. Um, especially since there are their new 404s, they, according to their chart, I'm not allowed to ride them on 25s because I'm too fat. So apparently all people that are not uh, small slash race weight <laughs> uh, road cyclists basically give up on 25s. Um, so we'll see. We will see. Um, on the tyre side, though, uh, the one thing that is changing, but it's not size, is just our team is running uh, tubeless setup in all TTs. I think they've done that for the last two full seasons. They're starting to do it on the road a little bit as well. Um, and, you know, leveraging off our tyre partner in Vittoria who make a very, very efficient TT tyre that is tubeless. So running tubeless on good wheels with excellent tires, that is a real performance benefit that you can get out of the wheels. Well, cool. Nathan, thank you so much for that insight. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier on, this bike is not yet officially released, so we don't have a name for it. We don't have an official release date. Uh, we don't have a ton of, you know, kind of more technical details, um, like, you know, super, super specifics and pricing and that sort of thing. Um, but presumably that will come soon enough. But in the meantime, we have some interesting insights. So Nathan, thank you again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, Dave. So you have chatted with Nathan in the past. And as you know, he certainly is not ever at a loss for words when it comes to talking about technical details, which makes him, from our standpoint, such a good person to talk to. Um, but this thing that he talked about as far as you know, kind of the, you know, sort of like this bit of convergence that we're seeing between time trial bikes and aero road bikes uh, is very interesting because as we are seeing time trials potentially getting, you know, kind of hillier and more technically demanding, that sort of thing, um, it, you know, the weight does play a little bit more of a role. I mean, whereas, you know, as he said, you know, you have pros who are constantly going on about saving weight, saving weight, saving weight on road bikes, you know, you put them on a TT bike, he says, and they all of a sudden they don't care about weight at all. They just want to go faster because, again, most of those courses are fairly flat. But now that they are oftentimes not super flat, then the idea of lopping off a few hundred grams off of a TT bike is suddenly really interesting. So I do wonder, like, you know, might we see a little bit more attention focused to shaving big hunks of weight off of a TT bike if possible, if companies now have to care about it more two things come to mind with this which is one they're adding disc brakes to a lot of these bikes certainly the case of this cannondale uh so in some cases it's just kind of offsetting that weight gain from the brakes it's trying to keep the weight i guess where the riders are used to having it uh at a level you know the bikes are already quite a bit heavier than their road bikes and i guess riders aren't going to be too accepting if the bikes are uh a heavier again uh so so yeah i think that that's an element uh, and then the other thing that comes to mind is just, uh, yeah, the the increasing number of steep mountain time trials where riders are having to, you know, you're seeing some riders pick their road bikes with, with aero wheels or even lightweight wheels and trying to get it down to the weight limit and other riders sticking on time trial bikes but changing out the disc rear wheel for a lighter wheel. Uh, and I think that's really interesting. And this kind of lightening of a time trial bike, I guess, is is very much in response to that where riders don't have to second guess themselves they can be on their aerodynamic bike without feeling like they're at a disadvantage uh and they're not having to decide which kind of bike they want to ride they just have the one bike for time trials right 
Right. And that is a good point. I mean, as we are switching over so many of these TT bikes from rim brakes to disc brakes, I mean, the overall bikes maybe aren't necessarily getting much lighter, but they might just at least be staying the same as they were before. But now you have brakes that work. Um, yes, which is a big thing for time trial bikes. Especially on courses that now, again, are becoming more technical potentially because a lot of times if you have, like, you know, a lot of these time trials are not necessarily like mountaintop finishes. I mean, if you have a climb up there, you likely have to go down and might need to break at some point. Um, so this thing that he mentioned about how, you know, yes, you can, well, you have certainly had a bunch of companies who have completely concealed mechanical rim brakes for aerodynamic purposes. You know, as he mentioned, you know, the structure still does get bigger in order to house those, those, you know, those rim brake calipers. So it's like you're, you know, improving your efficiency in one way, kind of, you know, making it worse in another way by making the cross section a lot bigger. But either way, you still have, you know, generally compromised in some way mechanical rim brakes clamping onto a carbon surface. It's just it 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 almost it almost never works very well, at least for certainly for carbon rims. Um, and you know, it is interesting the idea that. You know, while a lot of people are talking about how disc brakes are like, you know, they're ruining time trial bikes, so on and so forth. I mean, Nathan's pretty adamant that they are not making the bike slower aerodynamically. But the idea that you can now have a little bit more design freedom in 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 crafting the shape of these time trial bikes, because you don't necessarily now have to account for, you know, potentially smooth cable runs or some any sort of like, you know, crazy you know, mechanical force amplifiers, like, like what BMC used to use, that sort of thing. Um, you know, in that way, it does seem to make designers and engineers jobs easier. Um, but it also now pretty much guarantees you that time trial bikes have brakes that function well. Hmm. Which is a good thing. Yeah. And then same thing with, you know, everyone moving to electronic shifting I mean, we, you know, we certainly see this up front with road bikes, you know, with all the concealed cockpits up front. I mean, time trial bikes have already been that way for quite a while. But again, like along the same lines, if you don't have to account for like a smooth cable run or lower cable friction or anything like that, if all you have to do is send a flexible wire through the front end, or if you're running SRAM, nothing at all, then not only do you have brakes that work well, you have shifters that work well too. And at the same time, you don't necessarily have to worry that much, that much about the maintenance because, you know, I guess particularly in, in SRAM, in SRAM sense, when you don't even have a wire, um, if all you have is a hydraulic, two hydraulic hoses going through the front end, you know, I mean, you can bleed all that stuff without taking anything apart, which honestly makes things easier. It's really, it's, it's a game changer for time trial bikes. Um, I know in my upbringing as a mechanic, one of the best mechanics I ever worked with, um, while I was in the wholesale end of end of things, uh, he he maintained that what made him such a good mechanic and what and why he had such a solid reputation was that he just flat out refused to ever touch time trial bikes. <laughs> oh, so I guess he was sort of like you know stacking the deck, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. He's like you know I'd, my reputation would be ruined if I had to if I had to work on those things. And this is you know early two thousands where the bikes certainly didn't have disc brakes or electronic shifting, and everything had really long mechanical cable runs with really complex shapes and complex bends. And if you could get the shifting to kind of work and the brakes to like slow you down, but maybe not stop you, 
you are winning. Uh, and um, yeah, so I think I think we're we're in a pretty good spot where these bikes are actually getting to a point where one, they're safe to ride. Two, they're good to ride because everything works the way it should. And three, you can actually work on them. But more importantly, they perhaps don't need that much work. So yeah, I think all of this, all this, the latest technology is is just a good thing for the the progression of time trial bikes. This idea that Ronan had, this this speculation that he had that this bike was, you know, was just a new Cannondale System Six Aero road bike with a different front end. I mean, there are a lot of practical, you know, hiccups to that sort of idea. I'm just, you know, the front ends on, you know, full blown TT bikes are often just so much lower and like you know stuff like that. Like there's, there's, some things just wouldn't necessarily fly, but you know, the idea of doing something like that does certainly sound really intriguing. And it kind of reminds me of back in the days of like, you know, early mountain bike racing, where you basically had to use the same bike for everything. Like your cross country race bike Mm -hmm. was your downhill bike. Um, Yep. And, you know, one of the things I brought up with, uh, with Nathan was just this idea that, you know, in the way that we're seeing like really radical geometry changes in the mountain bike world, you know, we don't really see anything like that in the road world certainly not in the TT space. Um, like it's just still very traditional. There's just not really a whole lot of difference. Um, but it did make me wonder like, you know, like on a TT bike, you have so much weight on the front wheel and you know, you are constantly seeing that it's really only, I shouldn't say only, but you know, it, you, you do have to spend a fair bit of time on a TT bike to really be able to handle it well. Like, I mean, granted this is still, you know, this was several years ago, but I still remember, um, you know, you know, folks like, you know, Fabian Cancellara, for example, like, you know, people who were clearly, people who had clearly spent an awful lot of time on their TT bike and basically almost never had to, had to get out of their aero position for all sorts of crazy downhills and, you know, corners and stuff like that. Um, you know, it, it, it makes me wonder, you know, since you're not, since you're not implementing the sorts of geometry changes that could potentially make time trial bikes easier and more stable for, most people to handle if you still have to maintain essentially road bike geometry up front in a lot of ways you know companies have tried to make bikes that were designed to serve double duty as both road bikes and tri bikes with some sort of like you know a semi-adjustable geometry or like fit features and you know we see gravel bikes all the time that are trying to be like you know quiver killer so to speak like you know this can be a gravel bike or it can be a road bike um you know Granted, time trials are certainly a very niche market, uh, you know, triathlon as well. But yeah, I mean, as we're, again, as we're seeing all this conversion stuff in, in the ways that road bike, in the ways that road bikes are designed, you know, could they converge even more? Well, the UCI rules are being adapted for this year to, to allow that to happen, right? So you, the UCI rules now apply across, across the disciplines, you know, cycle cross road. You can now switch between, um, I guess you can race a, in theory, you can race a cyclocross bike in a professional road race now is, is what the rules allow. Uh, and, and likewise for time trial. So the UCI, I guess, is, is seeing this and I, I guess someone's demanded it to the UCI that's, that this opens up a lot of, uh, yeah, opens up people and accessibility to the sport is, is the general idea of it. And, and yeah, I don't see why not. Uh, personally, I think probably the big market demand for a bike that switches between road and time trial is is really the triathlon market that's that's really where the money is to be had is 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 in a bike like that and it is a fairly sizable market 
so I, I'm sure brands are continually working on the, that idea. And if you look at the mountain bike space and where mountain bikes are going at the moment, I think that could be quite telling of where we may go with this is like things like interchangeable headset cups that adjust the head angle of bikes and uh, flip chips in the in the suspension system, which obviously wouldn't exist in a road bike, but they could use that kind of theory to to adjust a bike's geometry in a relatively simple ways that would transform what the bike is intended to do. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of research in the outdoor space that show that consumers in general, you know, there there is very much a trend that people want their gear to, they want less gear that does more, essentially. And I do feel like we see some of that in the drop bar space as well. Like, you know, yes, we do have these full-blown aero road bikes, but a lot of these full-blown aero road racing bikes also can fit 32 millimeter tires and can go race something like, you know, Belgian waffle ride or something like that. Um, so we are seeing this expansion in versatility almost across the board and, you know, with TT bikes being so, so specialized and with things getting so expensive and with, you know, yes, I mean, the people who have money still have money, but there are seemingly a growing number of people who just don't have that much money and still want to do this stuff, rightfully so. Um, you know, the idea of having a bike that can be fairly competitive with, I mean, yes, you would still have to have different cockpits and, you know, wheels and stuff like that. It, it would hardly be cheap, but it would be less expensive than having a full-blown TT bike that you use only for special occasions. Um, so that- and, and sorry, just like the idea isn't actually new. Like I'm, I'm no, thinking about all. like old, old Cervelo S3, for example, which is a hugely popular aero bike in the early days of aero bikes. That had like the, that had a big feature that, that one of the big selling features of that was like the offset seat post that you could flip, flip around. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then achieve a proper time trial position. You could put aero bars on it, and then with the advent of disc brakes and with the advent of uh, electronic shifting, the idea of switching out an entire cockpit is now a whole different game. It's much easier than if you had mechanical shifting on that bike. Well, like if you look at a company like Redshift Sports, for example, I mean they make that they make that shock stop suspension stem that I wrote about quite a while ago, and it's a super popular option for gravel bikes because it does smooth out the ride at the front end. But I mean, that bike or that company got its start um, essentially in the triathlon space with the, uh, I think it was a whole seat post, I believe it was, that had this little parallelogram mechanism thing up front or up, up top that, you know, let you change the seat tube angle quite quickly. And then you had sort of like these quick release brackets up front that basically just let you snap on aero extensions. And so it, the idea was that you could use the same bike, your actual road racing bike, but convert it for... Uh, essentially at that point, a, you know, triathlon, really, uh, triathlon use without having to change anything else. Um, you know, yeah, certainly, I mean, the fact that, you know, yes, Cervelo has certainly done that before. Cannondale, not so much from what I remember, but, um, you know, if we do have this little bit of convergence, I mean, it, it, it just makes you wonder what bikes could look like. I mean, years ago, um, I was trying to embark upon a project with Felt, actually, because they had uh, what was it called? The IA, I think it was. Um, it was basically their their full blown TT dry bike thing, and you know, I was actually wondering, you know, looking at a geometry chart one day, it actually seemed like we could make it so that if, you know, if we did a custom cockpit, that I could make one of those bikes work quite well on the road and just have like this heavy but also hyper aero road bike. And you know that that idea unfortunately never got off the ground. Like we just were never able to pull it together. Um, it, it just, 
again, it just sort of makes me wonder what you could do with all that stuff. Cause it, I mean, yeah, it's kind of wacky and maybe not entirely super practical, but if you're not switching between those two disciplines all the time, then, you know, then at that point, the case becomes a little bit stronger for making something like that happen. 100%. And if you're looking at it from a business case, like currently most uh, most brands, big and road at least, have realistically, they have three high-end road bikes, right? They have the lightweight option, the aero road option, and then the time trial option. With In many cases, we're seeing the, the lightweight option gain many of the aero features and that gap closing. So in in a lot of the cases, the the aero road bike is is no longer as relevant to the market as it once was because now you can get a lightweight bike that is aero. I could see a future where the the aero road race bike and the time trial bike do converge, so the the, the brands can go from three to two options at the high end, and then at that point you do actually have a strong sales proposition to to your customers. You say you know you've got your all round everyday lightweight road bike, which is also aero, and then for the flatter days and for the days that you might want to do a time trial or even a triathlon, we've got the other bike. And I think that could be quite interesting. And the UCI rules are going to allow this to happen. They've been updated. They, the door's open for this. So it's just a matter of, you know, whether a big brand decides to invest in this and decides to go down this path. Mm. Well, who knows if any of these crazy ideas will come to fruition, but I don't know. It's kind of fun to think about regardless. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe a bunch of engineers will, you know, burn the midnight oil and play with some stuff after hours. But I don't know. It'd be nice to see. Maybe I'll have to, maybe I'll have to chuck 20 bucks at, uh, at Cannondale too and see what I can, see what they can do. <laughs> You're blowing your own R&D budget right there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yep. Well, cool. That will do it for this week's Nerd Alert episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, depending on what happens over the next couple of weeks, we may have another Tour de France special. We will see. Um, but in the meantime, if you liked what you heard here, please consider leaving us a comment or uh, a rating on if you're listening to this on iTunes. Uh, certainly, please subscribe to Nerd Alert if you have not already. We are on uh, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, pretty much anywhere where you can find podcasts. We will soon be on Facebook as well. Um, and otherwise, you know, please tell your friends about nerd alert because, you know, I don't know, we like to get nerdy. We like to think a lot of other people like to get nerdy too. So we should all just all nerd out together. It'd be good. Agreed. All right. Well, with that, we've still got a couple more weeks of the tour, so we'll see what happens. And in the meantime, we will see you next week. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.